0: which is that the Shrinks on 3rd podcast has provided the space, the microphone, the drinks and the food all from the kindness of their hearts. Um, Shrinks on 3rd is a podcast hosted by two psychologists, Cindy Ariel being one, who is here,
1: and And also my mom,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Julie Mayer, and they are both psychologists, as I said, and they talk about, it's a feminist podcast, they talk about the intersection of like psychology and social justice, and interview various activists, <coughs> professionals, uh, yeah, people. Different cool people that do cool things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have it right and cool I things. don't have it in front of me, so it's fine, good. Um, you can find it wherever you find podcasts. This
2: are is good.
0: Gonna...
3: Are you guys on Spotify? <laughs> yes. What? Uh, <laughs> I told you why. <laughs> It's gonna
2: happen.
0: It's you know, fine. Yeah,
3: beef with Spotify. It's fine. So. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so thank you to them for like hosting yes, us, Thank everybody, you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you. And now we'll begin.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted to just say as um, as the podcast, and we said this earlier when we were at um, the Convergence, uh, we just wanted to go, um, say that we um, want to know and recognize that we are currently in Philadelphia, what we call Philadelphia, but it is the land of the um, Lenape people. Um, and this is their indigenous territory. and. Um, so some respect to the indigenous nations of this country. Um, well, thanks everybody for coming tonight. <laughs> um, Thank you a for that beautiful song. Uh, You're welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can we hear been... it anywhere else? No. no. Not that <laughs> that <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. soon.
2: Her. Soon sometimes. Um, we've been trying to get her to put her
0: music on the podcast, Music Break, for a while, and, and actually, it's already been on there twice. Not <laughs> okay. Yes, but not that. Not, not her new <laughs> music. Stuff. Um, so this is a special,
4: convincing. Project. Yes. This is such an <laughs> amazing project. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna get you. We'll get you. Um, so yeah. So welcome to our live taping from the Philadelphia Convergence. Um, what is the date today? April something. Yeah. 20- Twenty seventh. Twenty seventh. Okay. <laughs> Um uh how many of you are listeners of the podcast? Regular listeners? Alright. A lot of, a lot of people. <laughs> How many of you are from North Dakota? <laughs> 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 how
2: many of
4: you are
2: from? What is going
4: on there? Wow. <laughs>
2: no on there. That's really like, honestly I'm disappointed, like, disappointed after seeing North Dakota.
4: <laughs>
3: just happened literally a
4: third of the room is <laughs> <of> the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is amazing, that is amazing. Which, well yeah. you just guessed I just guessed yeah. I had, yeah. <laughs> um, we are we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the podcast talk a little bit introduce ourselves um, and then we have a very special guest yes.
1: here um, <laughs> I'm
4: going to try to say her name correctly in Italian uh-huh. Cinzia Arruzza perfect oh, wow. oh, perfect Thank you. <laughs> Um, is here to talk uh, to us about her uh, book she co-authored Feminism for the 99% a manifesto which I have um, many scribbles in and many bookmarks in and I've written all over this book it's really really amazing so we're gonna have her uh, talk a little bit about that and research about it um and yeah should we do a quick intro to yeah. where we are. why why you start or singer for Why would
2: I start? <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So if you don't know, we're season of the bitch. Um, we're a leftist feminist podcast. We started almost two years ago. It'll be two years in August, which is nuts to think about. Because I think when we first started, we were like, who knows? That's going to happen. <laughs> um, I feel really, really fortunate. Um, Kellen was with, we were together from the beginning. Um, Walida and Zoe joined back in August. October, Mm -hmm. September, October, um, when we needed a little extra help. So they stepped in, and that's been awesome. Um, But yeah, I'm Laura. I'm from Buffalo. I feel very nervous after (laughs) playing that song. (laughs) Socialist (laughs) Feminist Convergence for me has been an interesting time for some reasons that I can't get into. (laughs) But If we hang out after this, because I was working the door beforehand,
3: (laughs) I'll let you know. (laughs) It was fine. Everything's fine. fine. (laughs) Um, So I'm Kellen. I um, I'm originally from North Carolina. Um, I have been in this like general area of the country for the most part for like God, like ten years now. Happy to be back in Philly. I lived here for a year um, and had a good time at the Convergence, good time with my gals. Um, and uh, yeah, I really, my, I want to give a shout out to the people here who didn't raise their hand when you are like, does, who listens to the podcast? Because who brought you here? <laughs>
2: in this like very strange situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, congratulations.
3: That's like incredibly brave of you. Um, uh, yeah, and welcome, and I hope that you don't come out of this being like, I will never listen to <laughs> that. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> it. yes. It's not a possibility at this point.
2: It's, <laughs> not, it's not
3: possible.
4: Uh, yeah. All right. Um, my name is Walida. I joined the podcast after being a guest on it, where I talked about um, international affairs on the left uh, prior
1: to, um, prior to uh, my... Indeed. Uh, so I teach at the New School uh, philosophy and I'm an activist of the, in the DSA and I, um, I was one of the organisers of the Women's Strike in, uh, in the US. Amazing.
4: Um, well, I have have a list of questions, but, exciting. I I have, like, things I've circled that I want to read out loud to everybody. Um, but why don't you just, let's just start simple. What, um, you wrote this with Nancy Fraser and Tidhi Bhattacharya. Yeah. Um, what brought you all together to write this uh, socialist
1: feminism? Okay. So, then, Nancy's a colleague. She teaches at the New School with me, and this is how we met. And with TD, we met through HM, historical materialist conferences and so on. And then in January, 2017, I came back from Italy all excited because I saw the feminist movement there, which was enormous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I knew that they were organizing the first international uh, feminist strike uh, on March 8th. So I thought, okay, we should, you know, at least do something, a panel, something. Uh, So I spoke with Nancy and Titi um, and this is where we had the idea of uh, trying to launch the women's strike in the United States. Um, And then we started really following very closely the movement and so on and um, and we thought that uh, this was really the moment to try to write a manifesto for an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-racist feminism, um, especially after the defeat of Hillary Clinton. uh, uh, and what we thought was the beginning of a crisis of liberal mm-hmm. feminism. Uh, we thought, okay, maybe the time has come to you know advance some other form of feminism. So yeah. this is lots I mean. of
2: nodding vigorously. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. muscle in neck. Yeah.
4: That's incredible. It did come at a, at a very good time. I mean, socialism's on the surge yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's really something I never expected to see in my lifetime, but I'm so happy that it's happening. And I'm so happy that there's an alternative now at least. I mean, there's always been a sort of leftist, socialist, feminist movement, but it's becoming so much more prominent now and it's becoming so much something that's talked about. Hopefully we're moving and pushing it toward the larger conversation about feminism um, in the United States, uh, which is very badly needed, um, especially here. Uh, so, um, so you talked about the woman's strike a little bit, um, which was different. It looked a little different in Europe, mm-hmm. I think than it did in the United States and perhaps even Latin America. Like it, it looked different from how it looked here. Um, how did they sort of grow and, and, Happened in Europe, like, and it, I feel like the cities there, the women in the cities there really took to the streets in ways that I've seen a little bit of here, but not at the scale yeah. that, uh, that I saw was
1: happening over there. Yeah, no, there is no comparison. I mean, yeah. uh, um, in terms of women's strike, yeah. uh, in the sense that uh, um, what happened, I mean, the, the movement started in Poland and Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, Poland organized the first uh, women's strike in September 2016 because there was uh, uh, a law proposal to ban abortion entirely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they started organizing assemblies and public meetings and so on. And then they launched the idea of uh, of the women's strike and it was really massive, like hundreds of thousands of people, um, mostly women, and they they won. And I think the fact that they won, (laughs) I mean, at least you know they they they, the, the one in the sense they managed to stop the ban uh, for a while. Of course, you know the government is a you know, far-right government, uh, Christian Catholic fundamentalist, and so they keep trying, but uh, they managed to really stop the ban for a, for a while. And I think this really galvanized um, you know women around the world. Like it was really a, a crucial moment. And then Argentina, in Argentina, they they, they, they launched the idea of a feminist movement, feminist strike against uh, gender violence. In Argentina, they had been uh, working on uh, uh, organizing an anti-capitalist feminist movement for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So this this doesn't come out of nowhere (laughs) in the sense they really worked very hard. They organized every year national assemblies of the uh, of the uh, you know feminist movement and so on, and they especially managed to involve a lot of um, women unionists, mm-hmm. rank and file unionists, who then uh, pressured the union leaderships uh, to call you know to endorse the strike and uh, and use the feminist movement actually also as a way to democratize their own unions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so from uh, then from you know Argentina spread you know slowly everywhere not not so slowly actually like yeah. Italy like organized. So, every November, every year in November, there is a, a UN International Day Against uh, Gender Based Violence. Um, and uh, we never organize anything here in the States, but uh, it, it, the movement has actually uh, organized a lot of uh, mass demonstrations in November. So, for example, in Italy, the first mass demonstration was in, uh, in November, and, the, and that is where they decided to launch also the feminist uh, strike And then it kept growing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, there were so many people in the streets. Yes. I
2: was curious, so, you know, you mentioned this like moment of crisis, essentially, where we're very much faced with liberal feminism. And I think that in a lot of ways that is the crisis because if it was this feminism for the 99% that you outlined in the book, um, I think a lot of the issues we see with liberal feminism would fade away. Um, So I guess, my question is, what is your advice for people who are interacting with a lot of liberal feminists on a daily basis?
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Ooh>.
4: <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs>
1: you mean like you know grassroots yeah. people? Okay, yeah, yeah. not because you know, like, yeah, Sharon Sandberg we... for sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, is
2: not like, someone I want to even talk to. So, like, sure, this exactly. is like my yeah, coworker. Exactly in Buffalo, New York. But <laughs> <Well, laughs> co-workers that like to read Lean In, For,
0: yeah.
4: one could have. Yeah, yeah. could <laughs> have right,
0: no.
1: Yes. Um, I mean, I would tell them to read my first one. <laughs> <laughs> that's why so we're always like, I'm listening to our podcast. Yeah, no, but I would you know, try to engage them in, in a conversation to show how, at the end of the day, um, a kind of feminism that, you know, has replaced anti-sexism or, uh, you know, let the fight against uh, misogyny um, and against capital with the notion of diversity or choice and so on or uh, uh, the idea that um, you know we should all be happy about uh, having more women ceo because you know in, in a trickle down way <laughs> this will liberate us all magically yeah. clearly has <laughs> not worked you know like we can show like even empirically that clearly this has not uh, had, had any effects um, in terms of, you know, liberating uh, uh, the large mass of women, especially working class and racialized women. Um, and then I, yeah, I would, you know, engage them to speak about uh, what can actually be achieved within this kind of social relations. I mean, feminism has always had two souls, you know, like from the very beginning, like they, they always had a liberal soul, um, so the with the idea of. Uh, reaching uh, uh, gender equality, but without ch- challenging the social order as such. So, it's, so which means you know, that then uh, women can reach um, equality within their own class. Mm-hmm. So then, then it becomes clearly a project for uh, you know, the, the elite, elite women who want to be uh, equal to the men of their own class, but this has no consequences whatsoever for the rest of the world. Um, and then there has always been a, a socialist or anti-capitalist or anarchist soul uh, of feminism that has always combined uh, uh, feminist struggle with class struggle, with the, um, you know, the, the struggle against uh, capitalism, uh, against the state and so on. Um, so I would you know, probably ask them uh, um, what this soul in <laughs> this liberal soul of feminism has actually produced in terms of, uh, um, women's liberation or uh, no, queer people's liberation. Yeah. You actually have a really
4: interesting quote in the book that has to do with this that I wrote down. Um, <laughs> Equality abolishes hierarchy, meritocracy diversifies it. Yes. So when you're talking about uh, the meritocracy of the American society, you want to put yourself up by your bootstraps and if you work hard enough, you can do it, but all that does is keep, keep the power structures in place. With just more people who are not white men, white straight men at the yeah. top, um, which, like you said, is utterly meaningless. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, great for them. Yeah. But what
6: me? Yeah. And what we
0: in one of the panels we're at today, they were talking about like the like bootstrap initiative, which was just like anyone remember the context more. Why? Than- <laughs> yeah, but basically, they are talking about like bootstrap initiative of just like you know, pick yourself up, figure
4: it out. Yeah. So it's a lie. Yeah. It's a lie we're told. Yeah. Um. So I want to talk a little bit about social reproduction, uh, which is not a term that a lot of people are familiar with. If I if I were to just talk to my friends about mm-hmm. social reproduction, they'd be like, "What are you talking about?" Um. Like we should just stop for a second. Is someone coming in, or is it the wind? <laughs> 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 oh, oh.
3: Hey, hi, hi. So Come on in. Say hi, hi, hi. Welcome. Come on in. Really sorry. It's <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 no, no, no. You're <laughs> <No,
2: no, no. laughs> totally good. Please grab a
5: seat. Yes. Make are seat comfortable. <laughs> okay. That who's peeing? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For what you gotta do. Yeah,
4: yeah. Don't worry. We'll we'll definitely edit this part out. And, yeah, that's what I was like. Let's Something that we tell all of started. our guests
2: is this is not gotcha journalism. Yeah. So we'll we edit it and it's fine. Yes. We're, yes. we're not saying sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm no, sorry. It's it's
5: fine. fine. No, there you're gosh. great. Thank Love you for coming. This is what yeah, yeah, technology
4: is for. Welcome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> Okay, so what's I say? We're just talking about social reproduction. Social reproduction. Okay, um, and you, you. There's a part in the book that sort of hits the crux of what socialist feminism is, and I think this is what I'm just going to how I'm going to explain it to people because it's very simple. Um, and and the way you the way you define it is class is not just defined by our relation to production, but also reproduction, which is work mostly done by women. So there's not just this relationship to this, there's not just this focus on wage labor, liberation in the wage. Um, liberation of the factory. There's also a liberation outside of the factory and outside of work. Um, women's liberation is tied up in in that that other class struggle. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk to, a little bit about a, to us about like what that social reproduction really is at, at the core.
1: Okay. So the the idea is uh, the social reproduction of labor power, uh, which is you know Marx's concept. Uh, so the level of education and so on. So. Um, Social reproduction indicates the kind of activities and labor that uh, uh, serve the purpose of reproducing uh, our capacity to work. And this is a labor that is at the same time affective, emotional, um, that is a material <laughs> labor in the sense of you know, raising children, uh, the everyday reproduction of the life of uh, you know, people, uh, taking care of yeah. Yeah, yeah, taking care of the elderly, of the sick, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, but all, it is also education, so it's socialization of the children, uh, education, etc. And um, um, part of this work, uh, a, a big part of this work, takes place within the within the family. And uh, what we have discovered also under neoliberalism is that uh, uh, it, you know, like, capital is actually able to allow for a diversity of families, uh, provided that they do this work. Um, so. It, no, it's not necessarily in the patriarchal uh, or uh, family. Um, part, so in part so part so uh, part you know takes place within the family and it's especially women's uh, uh, responsibility um, and it is unpaid labor, uh, no, you know, and which also doesn't have a lot of social recognition, mm-hmm. if at all. Um, part of it is also um, takes place uh, through public institutions, uh, you know, hospitals or uh, schools. Uh, child care, and uh, increasingly uh, we are also seeing that uh, part of this labor is increasingly commodified, so it takes place uh, uh, within the the formal labor market, the capitalist labor market. And uh, when this happens, it is uh, especially, not only especially women, but especially racialized immigrant women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why? Because, uh, uh, and this is the key point, uh, under capitalism, social reproduction has become Uh, separated from production for profits, uh, although not entirely separated uh, because now it is (laughs) becoming, part of it is becoming production for profits, Um, and uh, it is subordinated to production for profits. So in other words, social reproduction uh, costs a lot because it's a lot of labour and uh, it's a lot of human labour that can uh, not very easily be replaced through machines. I mean, you can replace you know, laundries, yes, of, of course, but childcare. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, they tried. It. I was reading, for example, um, that um, Facebook, uh, you know, put forward the prog- you know, an educational program for uh, schools. Mm. I don't remember in what state this was implemented in a number of schools. And basically, you know, kids are using now softwares and apps uh, uh, for uh, their education in the classroom. Which means they don't interact with other uh, with the other kids anymore, and the teacher us the role only of a supervisor. Mm-hmm. And what is happening is that all these kids are getting extremely anxious mm-hmm. and uh, are having, you know, having a panic attacks, CIDs, listening, you know. Um, so that, you know, teachers, uh, uh, pa- and parents, and kids are actually telling uh, Facebook to you know get lost yeah. with, <laughs> its, uh, with its ideas about uh, uh, replacing teachers with machines. So, I mean, there there is a a big part of uh, um, care work or social reproductive work that includes emotion and uh, interpersonal exchange, uh, the exchange of affects, ideas, and so on. So this cannot be easily replaced, but this means that it's very expensive because Mm -hmm. it's human labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, therefore, there is a constant pressure um, on the side of capitalism to uh, decrease the cost as much as possible. And how this is done? By having women uh, working for free within the household, uh, or by attacking labor rights, labor conditions within the sector of social reproduction, uh, and by importing immigrant labor or using uh, racialized uh, labor because it's cheaper. Right. Um, so, and these this, uh, structural conditions then uh, produce the, 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 the framework uh, in which, um, within which, then uh, uh, gender oppression uh, can uh, proliferate, reproduce itself, continue, and so on. Yeah. yeah. What? I was gonna say really quickly. Yes.
2: <laughs> um, which is literally what people say. Like they're like, if it, I know that Laura's talking on the podcast, she's like, let me just interject really quickly. I just wanted to say, <laughs> I would like us to like also open it up to questions, yes, and then we that. can also still. But I wanted to like. Yeah. If yeah. you all have questions for any of us or for Chinzia, like, please interject or like <laughs> let us know in yeah. some way. We would love to yeah. facilitate that. Um, Do people need to get closer or is the roommate like? I think it's fine. Okay, cool. I think I it's
3: fine. Projects.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, cool.
5: Yeah. I would love to bring something up. When you talk about institutions as you know a source, a site of social reproduction. I think about teachers, um, and I think about this myth uh, of the teacher as this politically neutral, blank um, uh, conveyor of information, which is diametrically false and ultimately is going to Favor those teachers who have oppressive standpoints mm-hmm. because they're able to frame their information as neutral.
3: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah.
5: And I consider every, every choice that you make about what information you choose to teach or not teach is, a, is politically motivated. Mm-hmm. And so what does a real future of education look like in which we actually use schools as a site of real social reproduction? Of, of values explicitly rather than kind of implicitly <coughs> sneaking in. Mm. And I speak as as
0: a teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of aggressive nodding with that yeah. one too scenario yeah. for the for
2: people yes. listening
0: later. Yes. <laughs> a room
2: full of aggressive knots. I as someone who so I worked at an elementary school for a while, I work with high schoolers now. Um one thing I would number one say is like get rid of standardized testing because I think like that for me was like Number one in narrowing what I was teaching. And I think having, I now teach in a nonprofit. Standpoint. So, like, I'm outside of the school system, so I can teach whatever I want, which is kind of incredible. Like, who gave me this freedom? <laughs> literally, I had I had 17 year olds coming up to me the other day, being like, "Laura, capitalism isn't good," and I was like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> I, yes. Tell me more about your thoughts about this. Right. So, um, I think I think teens and younger. I've worked with preschoolers before. Like, I think that. The kids are ready. They get it. Like, we all get it. Your instinct is not capitalism. Mm -hmm. Capitalism is something that is fed and shoved down your throat for so many years Mm -hmm. that you have to then unlearn. But it's not something that I think kids, like, have this intuition about. And so for me, and in terms of education, it would be, like, get rid of standardized testing because then you have the freedom to understand education in a whole different light. Like, when there's these standards, I feel like what that's doing is leading to giving too much voice to an oppressor, like you were saying. Where, like, the type of tests we know exist where slavery isn't talked about in history books. And also, like, Pearson Corporation. Right. Mm -hmm. What's their interest? Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And so, it's just, it's totally wild to see these incredibly smart, talented, wonderful children failing Mm -hmm. at our school systems because they're like, I don't understand this rule set that you've developed.
3: totally arbitrary.
2: But they're the ones that are right. And like, they're the ones that are also suffering for this arbitrary version of correctness. Yeah. I would also
3: add... um, as, as also being in education but on the the college level. It is funny by the time that you get there and also teaching at I guess what would be considered an elite institution. But um, could be not as an Ivy League, but not,
2: who's not s- could be considered it. an elite
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. institution right,
3: is an elite institution. <laughs> yeah. and then I, a cool. uh, I teach okay. at
0: Columbia. Uh, okay. <laughs> you can call it elite <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: So I'm now a I'm the one breaking Um For the record, I hate it there. <laughs> no, I, I love my students. Um, but it, it is funny because a lot of them are coming from very, I think, backgrounds in which capitalism not only makes sense but is um, is it will benefit them. That they are mm-hmm. the beneficiaries of the system that we're functioning under. And that's certainly not the case for all of them. And they're. Some of the most interesting conversations I have are after class with my students who, actually from a very almost like shockingly young sort of point or early point in their education are like, you know, I recognize that I'm here to legitimize this institution, mm. that this is a place for the reproduction. I mean, they don't use these terms, mm. but I'm, you know, a child of undocumented immigrants. Like I'm a first gen student, like, you know, I'm I'm like physically disabled and don't come from a wealthy background. Like, I the there this is a site of the reproduction of the ruling class, and I'm here to gloss over it. Mm-hmm. And again, they don't use those words, but they they understand it. And then there's also students who like maybe might be kind of ready to to I don't know. There's like a wall that a lot of students on the other hand have a hard time getting over, and it really struck me recently because. Um, I've been teaching a public history of public health class this semester and
1: you really I mean I don't know you teach any American history just
3: what I do it's constantly like wow this is fucked Um, (laughs) but we were talking about um, like a lot of workplace disasters as like a site of public health um, crises and I sort of did a a, 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 an activity with the class i was like okay let's put you in the position of somebody who's working at um a mine where you're inhaling silica dust and literally like watching the people around you die because your lungs are turning into bags of concrete what do you do like what are your options let's go through them like anything so like go to the doctor like what what good comes out of that why might you not be able to all the way to like You know, organize your workplace. Go on strike, and we walked through all those things together. And they, you know, like worked through what do you do, and sort of these like very charged class interactions. But nobody was like, like arm yourselves (laughs) and overthrow, the means of production. And I was like,
2: interesting.
0: That is what
2: Helen is teaching. um, Of course.
0: I was gonna add an anecdote because Laura said like the kids are ready, and my friend's daughter was running for her like I don't know eighth grade class. Pre- she's twelve, whatever, seventh or eighth grade, like class president, and she was running as a white boy, and I guess he was like repeating zero from his parents or something, and he was just like slated her campaign, being like she's a communist, and she was like yeah.
1: So you know, even probably two years old, like everything becomes a competition, and uh, they need to perform, and uh, and being in the classroom means you know. To be ready to perform, like passing the test, uh, uh, winning the prize, and so on. I think this is uh, this must be really destroyed, <laughs> swept away. This is terrible. Uh, it is terrible for the children because I think it causes a lot of anxieties. And uh, uh, once, for example, I had, uh, you know, like the, the the child of a friend uh, was crying because uh, she received a prize, and the prize was, uh, uh, you know, like eating sweets in the classroom in front of the other kids who didn't win the prize. And this was, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it causes really a lot of uh, anxiety to, to to the kids, but also it socializes them as competitors uh, in the labor market, as uh, uh, constantly focused on uh, somehow performing, succeeding, uh, getting there and so on. And I think this is like the, um, you know the opposite of what education should be yeah totally
2: <laughs> i all, so i in ithaca new york ran a forest preschool which is a really weird job that i had <laughs> i was like yes let's run around in the woods with two to five year olds it's fine. <laughs> okay. um, that's fine but we would tell stories we would tell these like a lot of them um were linked to indigenous stories but i think a way that a young child uh, connects to collaboration and what is necessary, potentially, like in working collaboratively with people can be told through storytelling. And so we would tell a story about this rainbow bird that would go up and like, take a bite out of the sun and come down and like share fire with humans because they were very cold. Um, And there was a whole there's a lot to it, we can talk about it later if you want. Um, but I think, I do think storytelling is a, an incredible tool and it's been used for for as long as humans have existed. And I do think that it's been a way of us like channeling education for as long as we've been this species. Um, and I think that young children respond really well to it.
3: I think also something, I was just trying to look it up because um, I don't remember anybody's names. Uh,
1: um, but I was reading.
3: Uh, I, I read like a snippet of something. It was fr- a French guy who was writing in like the '70s. Um, that I saw somebody had posted a screenshot on Twitter. So this is like several dimensions removed from the original, but um, it's absolutely factual. Though. It's, no, but so I was. I, I was trying to come up with an attribution, but I I can't. Um, so, I will go back and hopefully put this out into the world at some point. Um, but I read something recently about the role of toys in socialization, particularly with small children. So like we have obviously some of the you know like like you know little Betty Crocker and like the you know toy vacuum cleaners and stuff like that. Monster trucks. trucks. <laughs> right. Like there's clearly like you know I think well sort of hashed out the, the <coughs> culture wars over children's gendered toys. Yeah. Um, but also this idea that even like, like sort of plasticized toys, whether they're gendered or not, um, completely restrict the sort of child's imagination that you, even if you remove the sort of gendered aspect of preparing children for the rules of social reproduction, which removing that is a big step to begin with. (laughs) But even if you, but even if you remove that, you're still working within you know, here's a set of toys. Here's a set of possibilities for what the world looks like. You know, you still have, um, you know, your kitchen and your vacuum cleaner, but you have your your doctor's set. You know, you have your dolls that only come in so many forms. Um, you have, you know, your t- dollhouse, and that's what that's what homes look like. Um, and so, the way in which the the tools that we give children to interact with at such an early age reproduces the world in ways that is difficult for adults to see, was sort of the point, because it is our reality that we're reproducing for them. So one of the points that this guy was making was like, if you look at wooden blocks, like those are so basic and children can take them and turn them, you know, they're animals, they can build things out of them, they can, you know, use them to fight each other if that's what they want to do. But um, there is, again, and I really I hate when people do this, and I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I can't cite my sources. But um, one of the most interesting things that I've read recently has been this sort of simbolist theory about the ways in which even just like the, the objects that we give children really limit their ability to imagine imagine another world, that another world is possible. And we have this idea drilled into us from such an early age, and it is intentional, that this is the only world that we can live in. Um,
4: and it's such a wonderful message.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the answer is,
0: you have to take away their toys. <laughs> 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 <And it's
3: laughs> what, what
2: Colin was saying really reminds me of like, I'm obsessed with Emma Goldman, so sorry. <laughs> but like, Emma Goldman wrote a lot about anarchism of the mind. And freeing the mind, and she talked about it a lot in terms of government, and also in terms of patriarchy, and in terms of religion. like thinking really freely without these boxes, kind of caging in our minds and what is possible. And she also wrote in this extremely accessible way about her ideology. And I actually was thinking when I read your book that you did the same thing, that I really feel like there's so much power in taking like the academic language veil Mm -hmm. off of things as someone who's in academia for a while. taking that away and i think honoring the lineage of emma goldman of angela davis of asada shakur of the riot girl movement and having this really accessible language that is really pushing forward um open ideas and i think going back to your question but also just like also going back to your incredible book of like education is best when we don't have these like weird rules in place <laughs> that's like yes we must cite michelle foucault in everything that we talk about or whatever like <laughs> i don't want to play by those rules no one wants to play by those rules anymore mm-hmm. and i think like your book does such an excellent job of really like breaking that down and making it really accessible for people and i think like working with children is the same thing like we don't need to have these rules in place we can, under, we know, I think intuitively, but we've been told by this patriarchal, like oppressive system that, to doubt ourselves. Like we know what real knowledge feels like, what it, real knowledge looks like. And I think that like owning that and really pursuing that is where the power lies.
0: I think that's a good point Go- with also what Kellen said is like there's also certain boxes in our minds that like we don't realize are there because they're just not, like so ingrained mm-hmm. and there's like there's things that we do know like okay we've been taught to like apologize a lot you know that um, and like certain things that we're like yes we've been taught this and then certain things that you're just like no that's just fact <laughs> that's just how it is but like it's not
2: mm-hmm.
6: yeah 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 um Okay. so something that we were talking a lot about um, in our social group in the East Bay right as we're getting ready to like prep for the teacher strike was um, everyone knew that this was a strike so it was a labor movement issue but one question that we posed to our group was how is this a feminist issue, mm-hmm. right? So beyond this teachers being 70% women like how is this a feminist issue and something, you know, and like in so many ways schools are a site for social reproduction. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's this really good book, um, which is called Education and Capitalism Mm -hmm. um, by Sarah Knopp, um, where she talks about how for us right now, we think that we have to get educated to be able to get a job. But you can get as educated as you want, and we're still not gonna have dogs. Yeah, one hundred percent, walking embodiment. <laughs> um, but that's kind of what we get taught. When in other places and in other uh, lineages, um, education is is a tool to develop, like critical thinkers, um, but it's also a way for our communities to not have to have the whole burden of raising children alone, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, hopefully, like, parents can have fulfilling lives um, outside of that, and I was just wondering if y'all have, like, more ideas on kind of how to tie, like, the that vision of education um, to more of the, like, labor issues that we're seeing today,
1: and... Yeah, I mean the so the um, teachers' labor conditions have to do with their gender. <laughs> so in other words, if you look in in a number of countries, you know, originally education was not women's business, right? It was men's business. Um, then at some point uh, there was a shift in uh, the composition of uh, the labor force. So in other words, women started, you know, teaching started to be a women's job, and this immediately came with. Uh, uh, worse working conditions, uh, lower wages, uh, more uh, pressure, uh, uh, no labor rights, and so on. So this is not by chance. Uh, they could do this precisely because they, you know, feminization of labor doesn't mean just that more women uh, go to work. It means also that the condition of work uh, worsens. So, you know, the, the, uh, they, they, they get worse. Um, so, first of all, I, I, I think um, we should uh, uh, discuss with teachers about the fact that uh, it is not by chance that in a sector uh, where 70 percent of, uh, of the employees are uh, women uh, labor conditions are so horrible uh, that literally you know like teachers in west virginia could not really survive with the wages literally um, and then i think uh, uh, um, it, uh, it, uh, it is a feminist issue in the sense that you know education again is, is a site of a social reproduction and uh, uh, and and it is uh, this is the reason why it is put so much under pressure in terms, you know, cutting funds, uh, worsening the quality of education, but also shaping education in a certain in a certain way. So, you know, shaping uh, children and teenagers uh, in, in a way that is compatible with what they, you know, for, with what they will need to do afterwards, which is finding a job mostly. Um, and that, and, 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 you know, discussing also the fact that uh, precisely because um, social re- reproduction is organized in this way, uh, it, necess- it, 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 it is unavoidable that it becomes a site of uh, oppression for women. Why? Because the assumption that it is, it is women's job, mm-hmm. most of all. Um, so I think what we need to do is to show, you know, to place education within uh, a general vision like a general analysis of how our societies work, uh, to show that there are uh, structural reasons why education is uh, uh, under pressure and uh, why labour conditions could
5: uh, so work very well.
1: Um, so I think uh, you know the work uh, we should do is, uh, yeah, to show that uh, you know the conditions they the condition their living is you know, should you know, it can be understood better if we. Take into consideration what is the role of education in general. And also um, multiplying uh, opportunities uh, uh, of discussion and conversation among women workers. Because uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, I was reading uh, some uh, data that um, the, you know, the year 2018 2019 uh, is the year with the, number, uh, um, the highest number of strikes since the 80s, since mm. mid 80s. Uh, but who went on strike? <laughs> it was women. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, another <laughs> way to you know like to introduce feminists within the conversation is to have women workers on strike uh, discussing with each other, because uh, um, this is also the way in which you know you realize oh <laughs> why is it the case that you know it's narcissists and they are women and why is uh, you know hotel workers so there are also women and so on and so on so it becomes a way of uh, uh, really empirically also seeing that uh, uh, clearly there is something around the women's labor that is going on here and it's, so it's specific to women and feminist people I think it's also you know if we were to
2: expand why it's a feminist issue if you're not a teacher in a public school system is I think the burden of education of society falls to women in general. And so I think people who understand that dynamic that aren't even teachers in the professional sense can rally to that cause because there is an understanding that like we are the people that are holding the fabric of society together. (laughs) That's just, we know this empirically in general yeah like we just know this to be true and i think that it is a feminist issue even if you're not a teacher even if you're not an educator because if you don't consider yourself an educator
3: you probably still are one um <laughs> i also think another another way to kind of th- this goes back to the, like how do i talk to my liberal friends about right. this stuff? <laughs> <Big> um, <question. laughs> well, i think one way because i think people who are not on the left but who are liberal um, are very conscious of gender. That you know, identity as a sort of general construct is something they're conscious of in perhaps the wrong ways. Um, and it, I think, it, this is a point at which you can sort of approach them and be like, "Wow, it's really weird how like women get paid so much lo- like wage gap." Right? Again, maybe not. They're not focusing on it in like quite the right way. But you can. This is a point at which you can sort of approach them on things like. Teachers get paid shit. Everybody knows that, and it's it's interesting that that's like that's a feminized profession. Like, look at nurses. Another you know example. Um, there's a lot of um, literature uh, on the fact that like men in nursing rise through the ranks way more quickly than women do. They get paid way more. Men in feminized professions rise to the top. Very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because men's labor is always valued above women's. Again, this is, yeah. we're functioning within sort of a gender binary here, which I totally recognize. If you go get into a point where you're not functioning within the gender binary, then people are even more devalued. Um, mm-hmm. But having these kinds of conversations, like, wow, isn't it kind of weird how? That's always how it goes. And like <laughs> is there? A pattern. Right. right. <laughs> you know, and like and like the wage gap is, is a starting point, but then you if you bring it away from like compensation of CEOs and down to on you know a working class level because this is, you're taking this conversation that is on terms of these, that people understand and are used to having these kinds of conversations, and then you bring it into A, a working class kind of um, a sort of arena of labor, and B, into an arena of labor in which people are, there's so much um, you know worker activation that strikes are happening, and then you can very much like bring the conversation into like, wow, those teacher strikes, like, that's really cool, huh? Like, we should talk about that more. Like, did you, Sarah Nelson, like, you want to talk about Yas Queen? Like, <laughs> talk about this socialist, like, leading the flight attendants union, you know? Yas Queen, um, go on strike. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think that there, there are these, like, sneaky ways that you can bring people around, use the terms that they're used to using, and bring them into this conversation about labor militancy that can be, um, I think, very activating for sure. It's funny you say that because.
2: <laughs> I just wanna say really quickly um, I know that you have a time
4: limit here. Yeah, that's, yes, I was and, just about to say that. So I was, yes, okay, great. Cool. Um, we are coming up on time, um, but um, to, to sort of bring it all in and how to talk to liberal women and how to manage <laughs> these things with this wonderful book is. Um, there's a fun thought experiment that happens in this book where we talk, where they talk about, like, okay, well, if all of, if women all over the world, all over the world, stopped doing the, their unpaid labor, um, the world would come to a grinding halt. Like, imagine every woman in the world just stops doing literally anything to cook, they don't clean, they don't sweep up, they don't go to work, they don't do anything, they stop everything they do at work and not outside of work. Um, the world would come to a grinding halt if men stopped all of their unpaid labor. <laughs> Bye. Anybody knows.
1: I don't know what would happen. Like it would be fine. We'd
4: be fine. The world would go on. Which, which in Italy it
1: would be fine. When, like they don't do anything. <laughs> so, in like, I mean, Iraq, as
4: normal, yeah. um, which really visibilizes that idea, that concept, yeah. visibilizes women's invisible work mm-hmm. that we do yeah, the, to, to reproduce yeah. the world The finance day. sector would crash and everything would be better. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: so yeah, I guess I guess we're yeah. gonna wrap it up there. Um. <laughs> well, no, but this, was, uh, precise, this is precisely the, the brilliant idea of this feminist movement, uh, of the feminist strike, because feminist strike is not just paid labor, but it's also on wage labor. Uh, and uh, and you know, the movement that are you know, in various countries has found uh, you know, creative ways of organ- because what it means to organize a strike of unpaid labor. And, uh, and also this necessary labor in the sense, you know, like what do you do? You don't take care of your child? <laughs> or uh, you're you know, like, uh, elderly parent and so on. So, it, 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 but it is a way precisely of making a political point and also, uh, for example, in Spain or in other countries, what they did was to organize some, uh, you know, uh, collective uh, childcare or uh, other um, social reproductive uh, services, uh, where men who were supportive <laughs> in support of the strike went and do the work and did the work. And so this is a way because clearly, I mean, this is not really labor that you really can stop because it's right. our life. <laughs> you know, uh, you can make the political point uh that uh, you know if we strike from reproductive level then what happens and you can uh, try to find ways to replace the labor that you were supposed to do with you know forcing the man to do it for once um but i think it is i think it did play an important role in making this enorm- the enormous importance of this level visible uh, so and uh, and you know often the woman receives criticism what it means to organize uh, uh the social reproductive uh, strike these you know strikes are only in the workplace and so on but what what this criticism means is that uh, uh this is a political move uh, mm-hmm. it is a you know form of political strike that is making a very specific point about women's labor and it's also making the point that uh you know women who don't work for a wage are also part of the working class mm-hmm. they are okay. yes. still working
0: yes <laughs> yeah. something
1: i'm gonna just do a
0: closing, but uh, (laughs) I'll wrap this up. But when we did an episode with the teacher strike in LA, and one of the teachers was like, of course, people are saying like, you know, you're doing bad things for the kids. You're not teaching them. You're not in the classroom. And she was like, we're doing this so that like the kids can see that you can go on strike. Like you can make demands for what you need. And like, this is for them, like
3: they're learning from this. And and it can be a way to win those demands too. You You know, there's a way to take that that very barbed accusation that you are letting children down, and it's the same thing that nurses did when they were getting ready to strike in New York, was to say, you know, we're not letting patients down, we're doing this for patients. And there is a way to take the, the sort of feminized expectations of care that are weaponized to prevent women from organizing, for, to prevent feminized people from organizing, and to say that, no, we're not just doing this for ourselves, you know, this is a collective movement that goes beyond our needs, although, Obviously, it is completely legitimate to strike for yourself, your yes. own wages, and your working conditions.
1: Yes. By anyway, speaking of a strike, can I give a yes. question? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. 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 Please. No, I just learned that the nurses of the Hospital Montefiore in the Bronx voted mm-hmm. down the contract.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh. So
1: I wanted to, you know, cheer this right. uh, very brave. Uh, <laughs> Thank you
2: so much, Chindi, for coming here and being a part of
1: this. Thanks everyone for coming here with us. (laughs) Yeah, buy it and buy it. Yeah, buy it for all your liberal friends. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
4: Teach boys about feminism. Teach liberal
0: women. Yeah. That's what we do. Feel free to like get another drink and food if you want to chat with us. We'll be hanging out. Also, everyone who bought a ticket, which is all of you, gets a free pin, which is in the merch room back there. Yeah. <laughs> um So take a pin and <laughs> yeah, grab food and drinks and yeah, have fun. We'll be around. Thanks. Yes. So, thank, thank you. <laughs>